I want to start the sermon with a few questions, several questions as a matter of fact, starting with how many of you own oxen? I know some of you have cattle. Well, maybe someone's raising their hand, but I don't see anyone, at least right now, maybe someone online. Uh, so of those of you who do own oxen, uh, how many of you have ever had an ox gore your neighbor? I don't see any hands. Um, okay, let me try another one, another question. How many of you ever have ever been tempted to perform a religious ritual where you boil a goat in its mother's milk? Any show of hands? Ever been tempted to go over to that kind of religion? Okay, one more. Uh, this is going to be a hard sermon to preach. We have a hundred verses today about those kinds of things. How many of you are Jewish and living under the old covenant law? I was able to do half of that one because I have some Jewish heritage. Well, I think that pretty much eliminates everyone. And so aren't we going to have fun doing Exodus 21, 22, and 23, 100 verses about those kinds of things? How interesting. This Our work is cut out for us. I want to put some onus on you, not just on me. Exodus 21, 22, and 23 is our text. What is Exodus 21, 22, and 23 about? It's about what's called case law. And if you think, I don't care about case law, well, I'm going to help you understand your Bible better, so, so please keep with me a little while. If nothing else, I'm going to help you to understand your Bible better to be able to be a better Bible reader. So in Exodus 20, we find what? Those of you who've been Christians longer than about a year. In Exodus 20 is where we find the Ten Commandments. Okay, first revealed. And so in Exodus 20, we have the Ten Commandments. Everybody's heard of those. Those are significant. And if we backed up even further, which we won't take the time to do today, there was actually law before the Ten Commandments. There were commandments, we've even seen in Exodus, before the giving of the Ten Commandments. Uh, every human being who's ever existed has had the law of God written on their hearts, Romans chapter 2 says. There's something in everyone that knows right from wrong, even though we, we have sin convince us otherwise. There's been what we call natural law. But then, with the nation of Israel, they've been set free out of Egyptian slavery. That's what Exodus is all about. They, they're given the exit out of. God allows them to exit out of Egyptian slavery. Having been there for a long, long time, they're on the way to the promised land. They're on the way to Israel. These are the Jewish people. Well, he gives them the law written down. In the Ten Commandments, but those ten, ten commandments, ten commandments, hard to say for me today, existed before they were ever written down, given to Israel specifically, and now, here's where I'm going. After Exodus 20, Exodus 21, 22, 23, it's fleshing it out. It's applying the Ten Commandments to Israel to all different kinds of scenarios. It's not even exhaustive, but he's showing the people of Israel how they're to conduct themselves when they have conflicts, when they have difficulties, when they have little conflicts, when they have huge conflicts. Here's how you're to obey. That's what this text is about that we're going to look at today. We won't look at every verse. I'll do my best to survey. But you need to remember something important about Israel, and that is Israel is a unique nation. Israel is not the paradigm for every nation that's ever existed. They're God's unique nation. They are a theocracy. 
So you have religion and government together, uniquely, I would say never to be repeated, other than ultimately in the Lord Jesus Christ when He comes. They're this unique, strange, holy nation, and they've been given God's law, and then we have all of these things about oxes, oxen, goring, eye for an eye. And some of these things are going to resonate with you. You're going to say, oh, that makes sense. So I think that's a good reason to study this passage, because it makes sense. Some other things you're going to say, that's kind of odd, but it'll help you read your Bible better. Some of the things are just strictly for Israel, never to be repeated again. And you'll appreciate that, I think. And so we're going to look at this passage overview-wise because we're studying Exodus. And if I just skip this, some of you would want your money back. Okay? And I don't want to just skip it. I want to overview it because I really do want you to be a better Bible reader. I want you to see where there's similarities and differences, even the way we have laws in our country and in other countries. But you know what else? And this is maybe my favorite part. I want you to see that Israel as a servant of God, because that's what they're called, is not a very good servant. They're not going to keep these laws. They're going to violate these laws. And Israel as God's son, Hosea 11.1 says, Israel's God's son. Israel is not a very loyal son. They're going to violate these laws over and over and over again. And it prepares us to be able to see the significance of the Lord Jesus Christ, who Isaiah says is the faithful servant who does all the right things. And this is really important because when you do the right things, we're going to see at the end of our passage, you gain the blessing. Jesus is the faithful son who gains the blessing, not just for himself, gains the inheritance Not of the temporary Jerusalem, but of the new Jerusalem. We'll go there at the end today in Revelation chapter 21. He'll be faithful to gain the blessing of the new inheritance, the new Jerusalem, not the temporary one, on behalf of his people. And that would be us who believe. And so we will look at this from a Christian perspective, even though it will come at the end. Okay? Somebody said to me they have a friend who was going to listen to the sermon today who's not a Christian and they're so excited that I'm back preaching. And I thought, what a sermon to preach to a friend that is about oxen-goring neighbors. (laughs) But when you stand back, it actually fits in the big picture of Christianity because Israel has a unique purpose on earth there to be a son, a servant. They don't measure up so they don't gain the ultimate blessing. Jesus is the son, the servant. He measures up so he gains the ultimate blessing on behalf of his people. It comes by his works, but it comes to us freely by grace. So keep that in mind as we go. Ready to go? All right. Some of you are going to go like this when I skip verses, um, but I think it's okay to skip some of these verse, verses because we're not Old Testament theocratic Israel, but I at least want to give you a sampling, okay? So Exodus 21, 1 says, now these are the rules. Some translations say ordinances. These are the rules that you, sh- you that you shall set before them. So in light of the Ten Commandments, let me show you how to apply them. Let me show you how to flesh them out in everyday life, in the life of Israel. Case laws, general principles coming from the Ten Commandments. It's not exhaustive, but it has examples. I'm going to pick some of them that are hard. 
I'm going to pick some of them that are just interesting. I'm going to pick some of them that are just kind of weird. I'm going to pick some of them that only you'll see clearly apply to Israel. Because I want you to see that. Okay, here we go. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, as a Hebrew, when you buy a Hebrew slave, not from some other country, not some other kind of person, when you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh he shall go out free for nothing. It's not that slavery is good, but slavery has existed throughout most eras in most places throughout time. And so there is slavery, and it should be conducted a certain way. Now remember, the Israelites just came out of a radically oppressive kind of slavery in Egypt, and they've been set free, and they're not to act like the oppressive Egyptians. So, in a sense, God's meeting the people where they are. It's a reality. If you're a poor person and can't make ends meet, you join yourself to someone who can pay you to do work. Okay? So there it is. Verse 3. If he comes in single, this is kind of strange. If he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters. And he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to God, as in the governing authorities probably, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. According to Leviticus um, There's also allowance for payment to have them all be set free. Interesting. So, if you want to stay, you go to Claire's and get your ear pierced. (laughs) You get assigned to my house, right, with this certain marking, and you can stay. There is also allowance, which is not in our text. You can actually pay to have everybody go free. Maybe that's not how you would do it if you were in charge. But here we have fleshing out how can we uh, keep things reasonable and how can we keep things uh, in a way that would seem to make sense according to certain laws. Verse 7 says, when a man sells his daughter as a slave, that happened. If you're poor, can't make ends meet, or you have radical debt, can't make ends meet, how awful would that be? There it is. When a man sells his daughter, he's not saying this is a good idea, but when it happens as a slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. So at least there's going to be some special protection. Verse 8, if she does not please her master who has designated her for himself, again, not saying that's a good idea, but it's what was done, then he shall let her be redeemed. She can be set free. uh, He shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people since he has broken faith with her. So apparently he's done something wrong, which has led to this. Interestingly enough, if he designates her for his son, I want my son to have her as a wife, he shall deal with her as with a daughter. So rights and privileges as, as a family member. Good treatment. Verse 10 says, if he takes another wife to himself, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, or her marital rights. So again, not saying this is what's good and right. I can prove to you elsewhere it's not good and right, but this is what's being practiced at this point in time. And so if you're going to add a wife, you have to take care of the previous wife. Well, at least that's good for her. 
And if he does not do these three things for her, he shall go out, she shall go out for nothing without payment of money. So she can't be neglected is the idea. Interesting stuff, huh? If nothing else, I'm excited about working through this, ultimately because of the one who obeys for us. But if nothing else, I'm excited because I do think you can read your Bible better now. This is not prescriptive. Here's how things should be in the United States of America and for all people at all times. But how many times have people read this and thought, what in the what? If you have the Ten Commandments given to a unique people, a theocratic kingdom, and you've given them to those people, and now you're going to say, here's how it's going to flesh out for you in your kingdom so that certain people are protected and certain people have certain kind of rights. I go, oh, I guess it makes makes more sense to me now. I love it when things make more sense. So I hope you love that also. Okay, how about capital offenses? How about verse 12 of chapter 21? It says, whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. Well, that's applying the sixth commandment from chapter 20, verse 13. So if you kill someone, guess what happens to you? You die. It's capital punishment is what that is. We learned about it before there was the, before there were the Ten Commandments. It's in Genesis 9-6. So this is a law before it was ever inscripturated or encoded in the Ten Commandments. This is reasonable because human life is so important. People are made in God's image. And so if you take a life, your life is going to be taken. And sometimes people have gotten confused about this because this transcends the old covenant law to Israel. It's actually showing up in the New Testament as well and in Genesis as well. And some people say, but murder is wrong. He's not talking about you personally taking matters into your own hands. This is talking about governing authorities in the nation of Israel. They have leaders who are making decisions, making judicial decisions. So don't be a confused Christian and say, well, I could never be for capital punishment because that would mean murdering people. Actually, it wouldn't mean that. Something for you to think about. Then verse 13, but if he did not lie and wait for him, but God let him fall into his hand. Which is another way of saying, according to God's providence, according to the way just things work sovereignly, you know, this, this just was happenstance, we might say, but he, he the, the author here is a, is a good believer in the sovereignty of God. Uh, if it just so happened by luck is not the idea, but you get the idea. But God let him fall into his hand. Then I will appoint for you a place to which he may flee. You can go for asylum until you can have a trial. If it's not premeditated murder, but something happens and someone dies, you can seek asylum before you have a fair trial. We learn about it in, in the next verse. But if a man willfully attacks another to kill him by, by cunning, now it's premeditated murder, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. So you can't say, you know, religious time out, right? Home base. You can't do that. Or maybe some scholars even think you can't even get away with this if you're a religious leader because justice needs to be served. I don't know which one it is, but it's kind of interesting to think about this. This is all about fairness. It's about justice. It's about helping people to get along so there's not anarchy. Verse 15, whoever strikes his father or his mother 
right? The idea is attacks with great force, vicious assault. Whoever strikes with great force, his father or his mother shall be put to death. Which is harsher than some other punishments. It's because the family is so important. Fascinating. Fifth commandment calls for honoring parents. This is the extreme opposite of this. 16 says, whoever steals a man, kidnapping, I would say, and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Oh, there's another death penalty one for, for, for kidnapping. 17, whoever curses, opposite of honors, his father or his mother shall be put to death. Hmm. Pretty serious. How are we doing so far? Okay, let's keep going. How about fighting? An assault, verse 18, when men quarrel and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist and the man does not die but takes to his bed, so he's hurt, then if the man rises again and walks outdoors with his staff, he who struck him shall be clear. Only he shall pay for the loss of his time and shall have him thoroughly healed. It's just being reasonable, right? So time away from work, you know what? If you're the offending party, you got to help with that. And you've got to pay any doctor's bills that might be there, would be the way we would put it. So many of these things just seem to make sense, right? Um, case law, examples, so that Israel will know how to conduct themselves as a kingdom when these things or similar things happen. Pretty reasonable. Verse 20 says, when a man strikes his slave, male or female, with a rod and the slave dies under his hand, he shall be avenged. But if a slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So the intent, apparently, apparently the best, best reading would be the intent was not to kill, but they did die. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, how about this one? Bystander, a woman who's pregnant, so that her children come out. Premature labor, it seems. But there is no harm. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do you see what's happening? We're trying to be reasonable trying to have rational laws to uphold justice. Life is really important. And if you take a life, then your life is taken. Do you also see there that it's not head for eye? It's trying to be reasonable, right? It's eye for eye. Hand for hand. Let's be fair. Let's be righteous to the best we can be in a fallen, broken world is what God wants for this unique kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Some of them I read and go, huh, that seems kind of strange. Some of them seem super reasonable. Some of them seem totally unapplicable to us because of who they are. Okay, let's do verse 26. When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let the slave go free because of his tooth. I thought that was interesting because we're 
trying to protect everyone, not just aristocracy, not just the wealthy, not just the men, not just the women, trying to have reasonable protection for everyone given this kind of culture. Oh, verse 28, let's talk about laws about oxen because there might be someone out there listening. 28, when an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall be stoned and its flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall not be liable. Keep reading. But if the ox has been accustomed to gore in the past and its owner has been warned but has not kept it in and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned and its owner also shall be put to death. Maybe it sounds kind of weird, but you can kind of, you, you can see the rationale. A person wasn't acting reasonable, reasonably. You say, I, I, I could get on board with that. I guess it makes sense how that would work. They weren't loving their neighbor. They weren't doing what's rational or reasonable. Well, we're going to skip verses 30 and following for the sake of time. And we're getting a sample for this ox for ox kind of thing. And let's go to chapter 22. Theft. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and kills it or sells it, he shall repay five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If a thief is found breaking in and struck so he dies, there shall be no blood guilt for him. But if the sun has risen on him, there shall be blood guilt for him. I thought that was an odd one. So if somebody breaks in in the dark, you can kill them and you're not in trouble. But if it's robbery in the daytime, don't kill them or you're in big trouble. Okay. Maybe it's because in the dark you don't know what they're going to do. Maybe in the daytime you can see they're just trying to steal something. I don't know for sure, but it's kind of peculiar. What's done is bad. There'll be consequence, but it's not worthy of death. Verse 7 says, If a man gives to his neighbor money or goods to keep safe, and it is stolen from the man's house, then if the thief is found, he shall pay double. If the thief is not found, the owner of the house shall come near to God and his judges is the idea in Israel to show whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. So if we catch the thief, we understand. But if there is no thief, maybe the neighbor becomes a what? A suspect. We got to look into this. For every breach of trust, whether it is for an ox or for a donkey, for a sheep, a cloak, or any kind of lost thing of which one says, this is it, the case of both parties shall come before God. The one whom God condemns shall pay double to his neighbor. If a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he has put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. But if it is stolen from him, he shall make restitution to its owner. If it is torn by beasts, let him bring it as evidence. He shall not make restitution for what has been torn. It wasn't my fault. I did everything I could do, but the fox got in the hen house and I can prove it to you kind of thing. If a man borrows anything of his neighbor, it's not a good idea. My dad always taught me, don't borrow anything because you'll break it. 
And even if you don't break it, somebody will accuse you of breaking it. So, boys and girls, no. <laughs> if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. If the owner was with it, he shall not make restitution. If it was hired, it came for its hiring fee. That just makes sense because it's a business thing. And they were all, all along there observing. These are the kind of sermons when I tell my wife, I think this would be a good candidating sermon. Because if I'm ever going to go to another church, if I preach this sermon and they want me to be their pastor, it will be because of God's sovereignty for sure. (laughs) Honey, what are you going to talk about today? The goring of your neighbor by your ox. There's a lot of application for us. (laughs) I think all of the Bible is applicable, but it's not all immediately applicable. And how great is it to actually know God's strict law, now given examples of God's law. We're going to see that Israel doesn't live up to it to gain the blessing, which causes us to look beyond this passage to say, actually, there's great application because there's a greater son and there's a greater servant and he meets every obligation with heart, soul, mind, strength, all of his affections. And so being a better Bible reader here, I certainly hope helps. Let's talk about sexual purity now. Now I do have your attention. Verse 16 says, if a man seduces or persuades or entices, this is not rape. Rape is punished much more severely than this. This is not that. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed, formally committed to marry, and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Verse 17 says, if her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. So now we're applying the seventh commandment, clarity regarding sex. Sex is to be in marriage between a man and a woman. Now we're fleshing that out. What if someone, a man entices a woman to have sex with him and they're not married, she's not betrothed? Guess what? You're going to pay the dowry, if you will, and you're going to marry her unless her father, her consulting, no doubt, don't find you to be fit for marriage and then you're going to pay anyway. So there's consequences. It's significant because marriage is special because sex is special. Sex is important. And if it's important and it's designed for marriage, there's great protection given here for the Israelites for that very reason. I'm not saying we should have this immediate law in our world today, but it is intriguing to me that we don't even have any comprehension of such a thing whatsoever because we have such a low view of marriage and we have such a trivial low view of sex. People think that we're puritanical as Christians and we think sex is bad. No, we think sex is actually really good, better than non-Christians. And it's for a special place. This reflects that. This is not adultery because that's punishable by death, Deuteronomy chapter 22. And if she were betrothed, it would be considered adultery, Deuteronomy chapter 22. How about idolatry? This one is actually, I was going to say important. They're all important, but please notice chapter 22, verse 18. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. 
people who do false religion magic, uh, religious magic, not fun magic, but religious magic, same word used for the sorcerers, the magicians in Egypt, outlawed in the kingdom of Israel and people who are sorcerers or sorceresses <laughs> are to die. I told you it's a theocracy. I at least hinted at the fact that many of these things here are not for the United States of America. You, oh, you might think, I actually wish we did this. Remember, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to the New Testament, is made up of all nations. So we're not a nation. We're made up of all different nations. And the church, Christians, are to execute heretics, false teachers. There's no biblical basis for that. In the new covenant, we're called to evangelize them. We're called to preach Christ to them. And in part, that's because we're not the nation of Israel. We are not a theocracy. We are different. And while some of these things resonate with us, if that one resonates with you and you say, that's right, we ought to do that, you need to read your Bible closer. In the new Jerusalem, there will be no sorcerers or sorceresses. There will be no heretics. There will be no false teaching. But that's the Lord's business. It's something we've never been called to. And it's really important that we get that. When you listen to teachers, especially today, because we don't like the political climate and we don't like where things are morally in our culture, lots of us, and we say, you know what we need to do? We need to get back to the Old Testament law. If this is what we need to get back to, you don't understand that we're called to evangelize false teachers and heretics and sorcerers, not to execute them. Unique time, unique place, unique people designed to show us the unfaithful servant, the unfaithful son. We don't keep repeating that in every nation is another unfaithful servant and another unfaithful son. Read the book of Isaiah. It's Israel the servant. Failure, 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 failure. They can't gain the ultimate blessing. The suffering servant, the ultimate servant, servant gains the ultimate blessing in the new Jerusalem for us. This is actually really relevant to us, really important to us. In case you don't want to take my word for it, here's Currid in his Exodus commentary. Israel's theocracy is, is unique. They were a once called nation, never to be repeated. Our countries are not to be equated with Israel. And the statutes of the covenant code were for Israel as an emerging nation. They are descriptive for the time of Israel. And I would agree with that. Lots of Christians wouldn't agree with that. But I think we get more than we bargain for if we're calling to apply this in the life of the church. How about this? Let's think of it this way. In, in New Testament terms, uh, Matthew 16 says we have the keys. Okay? We have the keys to the kingdom, which would be the gospel. Right? How, how is heaven unlocked? It's through the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when, and when Jesus addresses Peter, he talks to him about this reality. So we preach the gospel and we can help people get into heaven through the gospel. We have the keys of the kingdom. But we don't have the sword as the church. Right? Paul in Romans 13 talks about, and he's talking about the Roman governing authorities. They don't bear the sword for nothing. Different categories. In the nation of Israel, they're actually together. One day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, the ultimate David, they will be together. During the time we live in, we have the keys, we don't have the sword. And it's critical that we understand that. We're not going to have a crusade. And if we do, it's not a good look. Okay, let's keep moving. Verse 19. Whoever lies with an animal shall be put to death. Whoever sacrifices to any God other than the Lord alone shall be devoted to destruction. And maybe just one more thing about that. So, maybe I, do I want to go there? I'm not going there. I'm thankful in the here and now as we live in this Babylon, Babylon world, if you will, borrowing from First Peter. I'm thankful for people who are part of other religions even, even though I don't think they're going to heaven, who make some pretty good choices that benefit us. And so I'm not calling for them to be executed. Pastor Pat Abendroth of Omaha Bible Church stood up and said he would like the governor to be executed because he's not a Bible-believing Christian. For example, something like that. No, not going to happen. Because I think Israel is unique with unique laws for that unique time designed to do a unique thing. I'm going to evangelize those unbelievers and tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ because apart from believing in him, I don't think you're going to heaven. But I'm not going to call for their execution. And I hope you don't either. Okay. Let's move on. How about the needy? Verse 21 of chapter 22 says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You of all people know what this is like. Be kind to people who are passing through. Be kind to people who are on their way from point A to point B. You can be a nice, good neighbor to them. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. They're the ones who are, who are in such great need, especially in this kind of world. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. I love to see the heart of compassion from God there. I surely will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with a sword and your wife shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow. So you see the negative, but you see the positive. God is for those who are weak. God is for those who others are not for. If you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, lending money is not forbidden. Deuteronomy 23. You could lend money and you could lend money to your fellow Israelites with interest. But here it's the poor. It's it's taking advantage of people. It's not like Deuteronomy 23. You shall not be like a money lender to him and you shall not exact interest from him. So be, be, be kind, be generous, be merciful. Like I was kind and generous and merciful to you. He uses that great word at the end of verse 27, or that great statement. I am compassionate. God is compassionate. We're supposed to be compassionate. Okay. Chapter 23. Let's go there. 
A little bit more overview. Verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. Don't say things that are not true about other people. That would be true for all times. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil. You shall not bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many. So even though everybody seems to be going this, this route, if you know it's not right, don't do it. But then it says, so as to pervert justice. Then it says, verse 3, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. So don't go with the crowd, but if the poor man isn't telling the truth, don't side with him either just because he's poor. Maybe that might be a law I would like to actually have in America. But just this is common sense, right? Be a truth teller, regardless of who it is. Then he talks about justice, verses 4 to 9. We'll skip that again. We get the idea. Um, it's already been stated, but now it's talking about in the courts. Then Sabbath in 23, verse 10, applying the fourth commandment. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that poor of your peep, that the poor of your people may eat, that they leave the beasts of the field, that the that what they leave, uh, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. It would seem that they must have staggered their land Sabbaths. Otherwise, the poor would only eat once every seven years. Um, but it would be reasonable if they would do it that way. Six days you shall do your work. But on the seventh day you shall rest. Literally, you shall stop. Sabbath, Shabbat. That your ox and your donkey may rest and the son of your servant woman, and the alien may be refreshed. Fascinating. So in the law code, humans and animals don't get equal rights, but you're to actually take care of your animals too. God, It's God's world. Take care of the animals as well. They need a Sabbath. So fair, just, good, compassionate. Then he gives three feasts, uh, the, feast of unle- the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That would be related to the Exodus out of Egypt. So that's in verse 14. Uh, then there's the Feast of Harvest or First Fruits. It's also called the Feast of Pentecost in the New Testament. That's in verse 16. And then in verse 16, you have the Feast of Ingathering, also called the Feast of Tabernacles. So these are their religious holidays that they're going to be remembering. And then it says in verse 19, the best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring in the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Where did that come from? So whatever you do today, don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Well, you probably haven't done that. And it probably, we don't know this for sure, but a lot of scholars think that it had something to do with a Canaanite religious ritual. Maybe tied to fertility or something like that. Don't be like the Canaanites. Don't be like the Hittites. Don't be like all the other ites. And don't try to borrow from their religion. Don't boil this small animal in its mother's milk. Now, some of you have been to Israel. And when you go to Israel, you wonder when you go to breakfast at the hotel, you can get butter. And when you go to dinner, you can't get butter. Some conniving minds, I won't name names, who were on this last trip with us, figured it out, and they would steal the butter at breakfast and then get the butter back out. It's kind of mushed. I didn't take any at dinner time. 
If you want to kind of sort of play by the rules, kind of fake it, at dinner they have little fake butter things that have olive oil. And that's a pretty good go-to. All of this is to keep kosher. Because you can't have dairy and meat at the same meal. And guess what verse they use as their key proof text to say, butter in the morning, no butter at night. Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Guess what that means in Hebrew? (laughs) Don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. So I think it's a stretch. um, But that's where the idea comes from. Strangely enough, it's probably a religious practice and it has nothing to do with whether or not you can have dairy and meat at the same time. That would be my opinion. But if you do go to Israel with us, I'll take you to a place where you can get pepperoni on your pizza because we just go to the Muslim pizza shop. (laughs) Violation of Leviticus 11. But I digress. Oh, there's more things about not bowing down to false gods, but we need to wrap it up. And so what I would like to do, there's, there's great stuff still in there, pre-incarnate Christ stuff, verse 20. But, but let's, let's end this way and let's end it with a, a tie into Christ that I've been alluding to all along. How about verse 25? So if we go to verse 25 in chapter 23, you shall serve, think servant theme. It's a big one. You Israel, Elsewhere called God's servant, you shall serve the Lord your God. And what will happen if you do? If you're a faithful servant and he will bless your bread and your water. So you have faithful service leads to blessing. And look how good the blessing is. And I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. And he goes on to fulfill the number of your days. I mean, this is a, this is a huge offering. And I read that like a Christian because I know the rest of the story. And I hope you do as well. If you're a faithful servant, extraordinary, wonderful things will happen to you. You will be healthy. You will be blessed. You'll have a great life. I know, and you know, if you've read the Bible much at all, know that they're not faithful. Read Hosea 6-7. Read the prophets. But I want you to see, if you're faithful in serving me, I will bless you and it will lead to things like perfect health. Do they do it? They don't do it. But it gets us ready. It causes us to anticipate. It causes us to look forward because one will give us perfect health. Because he's the perfect servant. He's the perfect son. And he gives us the blessing that he earns. This is Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21 verses 1 to 4 is the the positive. It's the answer. It's the ultimate servant who brings us ultimate blessings that Christians look forward to. That's why I think it's a mistake to get too caught up in the details of our passage. It's designed to be a type. It's designed to be a shadow. It's designed to help us to look forward to something greater, to a greater promised land. Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth and the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. Get this. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, 
So it's like the old Jerusalem that they're going to inherit if they're faithful, but they're not. But it's temporary looking forward. A new Jerusalem. Where does it come from? Coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride. And the church is related to a bride. Adorned for her husband, the bridegroom, who accomplished it, who gains it for her. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. Which is so unique, which is what comes out of, in a smaller way, out of the Exodus. Because you have the tabernacle and you have the temple. But now we have the ultimate tabernacle, ultimate temple. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Oh, that, that's Exodus talk. And God himself will be with them as their God. Verse 4, this is so good. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. That's like the ultimate way of saying... Something similar to what was said in Exodus 23. You know what? If you're a faithful servant, you'll be blessed and you'll be, you'll be healthy all the time. It doesn't happen. Ultimately, it looks forward to New Jerusalem from above. And guess what? You'll be healthy all the time. You'll be glorified. No more death. No more enemies dwelling with God. So please, dear Mr. and Mrs. Christian and your dear children, find Exodus applicable, but not in the way where you lose sight of the forest because you're staring at the trees. A unique people, unique time, unique place designed to do a unique thing to help us look forward to the ultimate exodus which we do find in the book of revelation read the book of exodus if you are a christian wait for it like a christian it's awesome history some of the details are confusing right there's a huge gap in in time and culture and language but we can read it and go huh makes a lot more sense than it did before makes good sense It was designed to do something greater than to be the way we do everything in the United States of America or somewhere else. Hope it helps. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for even hard texts like this where we think, how does this apply to us? How can I apply this to my daily living? Help us to be the kind of people who can step back and say, it applies to my daily living because history is going somewhere. It was going somewhere. And God, the God of redemption, was purposing and planning to have it all ultimately find culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ, just like the book of Galatians says. And now as we prepare to eat and drink in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ, help us to not think merely of the Passover and Exodus, but to know it was looking forward to the ultimate Passover because Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, just like 1 Corinthians says he is. What a great drama history is. And we're so thankful to know that you are the author of it all and that history has been going somewhere, that it is going somewhere, and that if we are in Christ, we have every benefit, every blessing, as if we were him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.